Hello and welcome to another episode of Under the Lights. This episode we've got another Matchday Memoirs and we welcome a special guest onto the show. My name is Tom Murray. My name's Cam Wilson. This is Under the Lights and we're off to Kingston Corner. to this uh, latest episode the first one we've done since the brief start of this Premier League season didn't have much of a break in the football not the greatest start for Southampton and we'll uh, we'll get on to that but um, it's my pleasure to be able to uh, to welcome our latest guest he is the uh, lead soccer writer and editor with uh, NBC Sports and Pro Soccer Talk which is the uh, just the website um, and Southampton boy as well Joe Prince Wright and you can find him on Twitter at JPW underscore NBC Sports. Thanks very much for joining us, Joe. I know it's a, a bit late, but you're on New York Times. So I don't feel so bad for roping uh, you in at this time now. Yeah, I'm used to this lights. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to chat all things Saints, all things football. And uh, yeah, I mean, not the greatest start of the season, like you said, but not like Saints ever start a season well. So uh, nothing really changes there. Absolutely not. It's something that us as Saints fans, we've... Uh, Come to expect the number of opening day wins is uh, is frightening. But obviously, you've been doing great work over over the other side of the pond. But you're a local lad initially. You're a saint. You're a Saints fan. What's what's your earliest memories of like your first game or just in or football in general? I probably have one of the worst first game story you've ever heard. But um, I went to the Dell on a Monday night uh, to see Saints play West Ham. I was about five years old. So I was really excited going there. And then um, we had tickets right behind the dugouts, wasn't covered, and the heavens opened, got drenched. Uh, pretty sure I burned my mouth on a hot chocolate thinking it was a Coke. Um, and cried so much. My dad took me home at halftime in a cab and I fell asleep watching the second half on Sky on a Monday night. And Saints lost 2-0. But um and it's been the only way he's been up since then. I was hooked. <laughs> but, um, it's, it's, yeah, it's becoming a, a common theme on the, on our episodes as we as we have guests. I mean, we we had uh, Matt Markstone who does this um, system delivery podcast over in the states as well, and uh, and he had uh, he obviously didn't have many chances to come over here, but when he did, I can't remember the specifics. You might, Tom, but he had uh, a pretty awful go over to um, to their stadium, London Stadium, and. and and there was that one you might remember where Arnautovic just beat us single-handedly within the sort of first first half. Mine was a home game at the Dow, uh, first game of the season, and we uh, we lost three 0 to uh, Michael Bridges' hat trick. So uh, essentially, I don't think you get on the podcast unless you've got a, a bit of a horror story for your uh, for your first game. Vacation, then I didn't even know that honestly, but no. I used to go and sit with my mates behind the Milton, uh, in the Milton Road stands every week, basically uh, in the Junior Saints section. Obviously, the days of Latiz, uh, Egil Ostenstad, Eil Berkovic, um, those are sort of the heyday. I remember going a lot. We'd play football in Botley in the morning with those lads, go home, get changed, and then go straight to Dell when there was a home game. And uh, absolutely loved it. Was hooked. I mean, at that time, didn't know I wanted to be a football journalist at such a young age, but I would sit there and read the program front to back, know all the stats, would wake up on a Saturday morning and watch reruns of like, is it 
Football Mondial, whatever was on, and documentaries about Argentinian football, and just totally engrossed by anything to do with football. So, um, yeah, lucky to have Saints on my doorstep, lucky to have a team that you could go and watch all these great players. And uh, yeah, I love the club, love the city, and um, I just hope in my lifetime they can win something and can celebrate because when they won the Johnson's Paint Trophy, I was in Pittsburgh and uh, I wasn't at Wembley, so I, I still hear stories about that day now. I wish I was there, but I know it's not quite on the level of the FA Cup win, but. We take what we can get, Carl. Well, with the Johnson's Paint Trophy win, there are not many clubs that can sing that they've won that. You know, so I think we're we're doing all right. And I, I continue myself the uh, the poor opening day stories. Mine was that three two loss at home to Villa in our relegation season. Went two 0 up, and I thought this is easy. You know, this is this is what this is great. And then Stephen Davis scored in the last minute to make it three two. I didn't understand the pain at the time. I was more I was more disappointed and just thinking, oh well, that's a shame. Now, if it had happened, I'd uh, I'd be pretty pretty gutted. So, um, obviously, you've been really really busy with the football journalism side with NBC. Have you been able to get to any Saints game at all in the last few years as a fan? Being there in the stands as a fan, or does your does your job really quite make that difficult? Because I know I'm I'm, I'm incredibly jealous. You get sent to all the other other grounds instead. But have you been back to St Mary's as a fan any time recently? I haven't actually been to St Mary's as a fan for quite a while. I, I've been there to work a lot, and like you said, it kind of dictates. Usually, I'm at the bigger games each weekend. I don't want to do Saints a disservice, but under Ronald Koeman, I was watching Saints a lot, and when we were flying high. But recently, it hasn't been the case of going to watch them for work, which is a privilege. Um, so yeah, I kind of I, whenever I can, I do I, last. Well, I say last it was last season, but it feels like a long time ago. I went to Newcastle away. I was working up in Manchester, and uh, on the Saturday, and got a train up to Newcastle Saturday night. Um, and then should have won that. I don't know how we lost that game. I really don't. But um, and then I went to uh, the FA Cup replay away at Tottenham, uh, which we also lost, but played really well as well. So there's a theme there. Um, but yeah, I love going to away days. My dad is a massive Saints fan, used to be a program seller at the Dell when he was a teenager. Uh, my granddad used to go in the Milton Road end. Uh, all my family loved Saints. Um, my whole childhood, really, all my best memories were from watching Saints, either on TV or in person, uh, and idolizing the players. So um, I try and go whenever I possibly can. And I've even got some of my US family to become hardcore Saints fans now. So whenever they come over to visit, my wife and I from the States, they always want to go to a game and they're actually good luck charms. My father-in-law has never seen Saints lose. And I'm pretty sure in saying, I think the record stands at seven wins and one draw now in the eight games. So I think if we're struggling this season, we might have to get them over and chip in because, uh, yeah, it's a good record. But I, I love going to watch Saints play whenever I can as a fan. Um, there's nothing quite like an away day. And St Mary's is always good. I found the atmosphere has been a lot better under Ralph Hazen over the last sort of uh, six to 12 months, I guess, even though we haven't been winning as much. At least the fans know we're pulling in the right direction. Yeah, and although those two games at Newcastle and Tottenham didn't, didn't yield any wins, I think most fans probably prefer the away day at the moment, especially after last season where our away form was so contrasting to the home form. But we'll get more, we'll get more onto Saints. It really, really intrigues me what it is that, that you do uh, with NBC. Obviously, uh, myself, Tom, and I, I would assume most of our listeners probably don't have the greatest knowledge of uh, soccer in America. 
the, your coverage of, of the Premier League and all, all things, I'm going to say football because it's just out of habit, but yeah, and, and, and all things uh, over there. You're obviously uh, heavily involved with the writing and editing and with the Pro Soccer website. So um, let's, let's start mainly with how you kind of got into that and then we can we can delve a little bit more into what exactly it is that you do apart from being sent to all the grounds to watch all the games. <laughs> yeah, it's not bad, right? Um, it's, yeah, I mean, I started in Southampton at the Daily Echo doing work experience and then um, I used to write uh, a column each weekend for the Pink on Tyro football and did that while I was at Itchen College. Um, kept getting experience that way. And then when I went to Pittsburgh to play football on a scholarship at the University of Pittsburgh, I mean, our football, not American football, if anyone's seen a photo of me, I would not be built to play American football. Um, so, yeah, I played over there for four years, absolutely loved it. And while I was there, got my two degrees, one in communications, one in English. And then I interned with the Pittsburgh Penguins in the NHL, uh, Fox Sports Pittsburgh, covering you know, the Steelers, baseball, um, College basketball was big as well. Uh, and then I also worked uh, with ESPN Radio there as well. So I tried to get every sort of different facet of the journalism world and experience in that. And I was lucky that it was such a sports mad town that it really helped. You know, that they were there and winning. The Steelers won the Super Bowl when I was there. Penguins won the Stanley Cup. So, And, and it's a great sports city. So there's a lot of good opportunities as a young journalist. From there, as part of your studies in the States, you get to work for a year in the field that you graduated in. So you're allowed to work in the journalism field, in my case, for an extra year. So I got my visa extended. I worked for Major League Soccer in Manhattan. Um, and that was amazing on the editorial team, learning from Greg Lallis, who was Alexi Lallis's brother. Um, and he's, you know, created a great team there. It was a really good, young, vibrant sort of time when Major League Soccer seemed to be adding a couple of teams every season. It went, you know, now it's a nearly 30 teams and when I was there in 2011 there was you know 12, 13, 14 teams getting to that stage so it's nearly doubled in size and uh, that was a great experience I played in Scotland for a little bit uh, at Arbroath in the third division and while I was freelancing for the Guardian writing on MLS um, working for ESPN and still working for Major League Soccer but remotely uh, from Edinburgh so doing regular columns for them so I kind of kept writing and playing uh, at the, the level there where we train like two, three times a week, play games, uh, and kept wanting to play as long as I possibly could, which was a lot of fun. But then the role of NBC came up in 2013. I was freelancing with them, and we got the rights to show the Premier League in the US, which was huge and a real game changer. And got for the full-time position of NBC, so I stopped playing. And ever since, you know, seven years on, I think that if you ask anybody in the States, they would agree that the level of coverage has been wonderful. The fact that you can watch every single game, no matter what your team is, has been a huge thing for us to give to the American soccer fans. And not the Premier League teams and clubs and the league itself wasn't popular beforehand, but now it's almost across the board become more popular. I think you know, you'll know you see supporters groups supporting Saints, you know, Swansea when they're in the league, West Ham... Um, you know, just different teams uh, that maybe aren't uh, the big name teams that you would generally, you know, gravitate towards if you're looking to get into a league and watch games. But for me, spending so much time in the US, but also growing up in Southampton and watching the Premier League and knowing it inside out, 
it's a really good fit. You know, I feel like I can. And, and this is one point I want to get across with the US market. You said obviously maybe most English people aren't quite sure about how football is progressing there or soccer. You know how we say and. The American football fan, American soccer fan, is incredibly educated. You can wake up there in the morning and watch Premier League and European games at 7 a.m. You can watch that all through the morning. Then MLS games will start, or you can watch other games from European leagues later on the day. Then you can watch Liga MX in Mexico. You can watch South American games. You can watch NWSL because women's soccer is a huge thing, not just a men's game in the U.S. as well. And it is one of the few places in the world, I think, if you want to wake up at 6am in the morning, you can watch football from, you know, morning until 1am the next morning, pretty much. So it's wonderful to see. Uh, and even is, we all know here in the UK or in Europe in general, 75%, 80% of populations in countries like England or Spain or Germany, Italy, will love the game and watch it and know a lot about football. In the US, that percentage is lower. There's a lot more traditional sports that football's battling with, with the NFL, baseball, ice hockey, basketball. But for that, say, 20% of the population who care about football and watch football a lot, they are incredibly knowledgeable and very dedicated, purely because they have to be, to stay in the loop. They have to watch games, know where to watch it, know what's going on, and they have an incredible connection with the game. And uh, we've seen with a lot of American players coming through in Europe now that the game's going to the next level. As I said, MLS is growing all the time. And for me, when I went there as an 18-year-old kid from Southampton, it shocked me that the level of interest in football and soccer wasn't the same here. But then in the last 15, 16 years, when I look back on that time, it's changed rapidly. It really has gone to a next level very quickly. And I think NBC's been a big part of that. Might be a bit biased, but it's a, it's really, for me, it's really cool to be involved in something where I feel like we're not just providing content. We're not trying to educate the fans. You know, we're not treating them, dumbing it down. It's the same coverage that you would get here in the UK or in Spain or Italy or Germany. It's not, the, the American soccer fan is very educated and we are part of the process of giving them the game and doing it as if we would do over here in the UK. So it's uh, it's wonderful. I really enjoy the US-England uh, crossover when it comes to the Premier League. Yeah, and they get a, the average American soccer fan gets a, a hell of a lot more ability and, 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 to, and exposure to, to the Premier League than, than even we do in yeah. the UK, which is something that uh, we're all hugely jealous of. I know that obviously NBC... Uh, are a major player in that and you guys have, have got a relatively new sort of streaming uh, system called, called Peacock which allows uh, fans to watch even more games than they would have before because obviously you can't watch every game because a lot of them are on at the same time you know three o'clock kickoff and all those sorts of things although at the moment with uh, with lockdown every game seems to be on at a different time but we'll, we'll, we'll kind of go into those changes and, and, and how you found it we all know that it's been growing hugely over there and you've got the main four sports over in America and, and, and have been for a long long time it seems from this side that the MLS is next after that and is growing um, as you said with every day it seems it seems that you get more and more um, and they do seem extremely dedicated the fan bases I mean they fill some pretty big stadiums as well yeah. I know there are, I know there are more of them over there but uh, the, st- 
stadiums and, and the capacities are, are massive. I'm just interested because obviously I, I, I put it down to the fact that there's more exposure, as you rightly say, due to a lot of what NBC have been doing and the fact that you can watch it and it's there at the fingertips. Naturally, it's going to become more popular and, and more people will be invested. I think the other thing is the growing number of American football players that are coming over to, to Europe and over to the Premier League. I always remember maybe sort of 15 years ago when, when Fulham seemed to have like an influx of several Americans and you had uh, like McBride and, and um, Bocanegra and uh, probably some others that um, uh, and all the goalkeepers that have been in the Premier League as well. Obviously. As well yeah. would, would you say those are the two major reasons and, and also is, is the growth of the MLS byproduct of those two things or do you think the MLS has grown and that's the reason that there's now more coverage over, uh, for overseas games? I think it all kind of goes hand in hand to be honest it's more people are interested in the game so in turn they'll find their local team if they turn on the TV and watch a Bundesliga game a Premier League game Barcelona Real Madrid if they're interested then they'll be like I live in Houston. I'm going to go and watch Houston Dynamo this weekend playing MLS and vice versa. You know, if they're going to an MLS game with their friends, they are talking about, oh, did you see this goal, you know, this morning that Chelsea scored? And then they'll tune into us. So I think it's one big ecosystem, really, that works hand in hand. And uh, I honestly think that the potential hasn't even, they haven't even scratched the surface yet, if I'm totally honest. It's getting there, but there's still so much more room for growth. And I go out on the limb and say that it will overtake, if it hasn't already, some of the more traditional sports, ice hockey, maybe baseball. I honestly think it will get to a stage where it is overtaken those sports in terms of popularity. Like you said, MLS stadiums now, Atlanta United, fill in Mercedes-Benz Stadium, you have Seattle Sounders. Portland Timbers, Vancouver Whitecaps up there in the Pacific Northwest always get great crowds. LAFC, Chicago Fire just moved into Soldier Field with the NFL Stadium. So I think the interest levels from MLS and, and sort of interest levels in the game go hand in hand no matter what league people are watching. And I think whenever the US national team does well, it is always a good thing as well. So when the women's national team are back-to-back World Cup champions, that's great. And like you mentioned, US players... Christian Pulisic ripping it up with Chelsea in the Premier League. That does wonders um, for kids sat in America. I mean, he's from a small town in the middle of Pennsylvania, not far from where I went to university in Pittsburgh. And kids sat there will be thinking, I can do that. There's an American kid there. I can do that. And no one's ever done that on his stage and at that big of a club in the Premier League for him. You've had Clint Dempsey, Tim Howard, Brad Friedel at a different level at a different level making an impact but now you've got Tyler Adams at RB Leipzig Weston McKenney's just signed for Juventus Giovanni Reiner as at Borussia Dortmund um, yeah I didn't want to bring on Weston McKenney there there was hope he'd be with us but I can't see why there's a good calibre of US players now but if they can qualify for the next World Cup that'd be great but at least for 2026 it looks like hasn't been confirmed but they're going to host they're hosting it so they're more than likely along with Canada and Mexico are going to be given yeah. automatic qualification. So that's good because 2018 not qualifying for that World Cup was definitely a massive shock, uh, a big shock to the system. But yeah, I think everything goes hand in hand in US soccer. And uh, of course, the college game, we didn't mention that, that's huge as well over there, college yeah. sports. Uh, 
and the academy system at MLS, developing those young players to either thrive in MLS or then, like McKenney or obviously Pulisic was developed a bit differently, but they come over to Europe eventually and then make a name for MLS. But yeah, it's it's really cool to see everything teaming off one another. And obviously in, in America, it's such a diverse country, but it's also, it, that works um in terms of the sports as well, because you've obviously got the the, the ones you find further up north, and uh, you play a lot of ice hockey and in those kind of snowy areas within the country. There into their hockey, you've got some that are just some places that are major on 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 NFL. Most of them are big on NFL, and this uh, it's, it's interesting with MLS that you'd say that you think you can see them them overtaking some of those sports and I guess some of the affiliations with with the Premier League I know they're always kind of in their twilight years really big stars going on over there and ending their careers there that seems to have come back around in the last 10 years and obviously the likes of, of Beckham almost restarting that and a lot a lot of them following with the Galaxy but then Man City with uh, with New York City and that, that kind of affiliation where they get players in and then some of them end up going over to New York and of course Beckham again starting up the uh, the Inter Miami kind of movement and uh, and it's just growing and growing and and it's a really good point you make with the World Cup because I think the World Cup in 94 was was a major thing for soccer and states yeah. and I think in 2026 it's just going to take it to a to another another level altogether absolutely yeah I mean looking back when the US were in the 2014 World Cup and the men's team did well got to the knockout rounds I was in the US that summer and there were street parties, there were cities, downtown areas, putting up huge TV screens, filling out NFL stadiums, opening them up to show the games. That hasn't happened before. That has never happened for a while, apart from the US hosting the World Cup 20 years previously. Since then, the interest levels haven't been that high. So it was a disappointment when they didn't make the World Cup in 2018, especially with Pulisic sort of on the rise. But... They have time. They're a young team right now. They basically got rid of all the veteran players after that uh, debacle to not qualify from CONCACAF. And um, yeah, I think the future's looking good for the US national team. And would you say that in, it could be like one of the countries in the world where the interest in women's football may actually be higher than that in the men's just because of the major success of the the women's international team? Obviously, you got Megan Rapinoe being not just not just scoring the goals and being a fantastic player but also standing up against Trump and we don't obviously we don't want to turn this political but obviously she is she's standing up and inspiring lots of people do you see the women's game in the US as being bigger currently than the men's one yeah I mean we actually have just acquired some rights to show 50 games a year on NBC of WSL the FA mm-hmm. Women's Super League so yeah you have obviously uh, Alex Morgan at Spurs you have Kristen Press and Tobin Heath at Man United you have uh, Rose Laval and Sam Mewis at Man City. So you've got five massive US women's national team players now playing for big Premier League clubs. So I think that's a really interesting thing for us at NBC. I know that there's a lot of interest and yeah, the women's team have been much more popular than the men's team for a long time now. So they're wonderful, wonderful role models, like you said, uh, standing up for equal pay and equal rights. Um and I think they've really been trailblazers in the women's game to inspire leagues and women's national teams around the world and to give you know FIFA food for thought on how they've treated women's football in the past. And yeah, women's soccer players are superstars in the US 
And I don't think it will be that long until that's the case here in England and elsewhere around the world as well. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's huge. And I think it's one of the reasons why the U.S.'s potential as a soccer nation and a football nation, shall I say rather, um, is pretty much limitless because I don't think any other country in the world embraced women's football before it embraced men's football. And that's definitely the case with the US. So, yeah, yeah I, think, I think the US are out on their own, especially in, as you mentioned, the fact that the, the women's game is, is so much bigger than the men's. Um, when you look at it from the UK, for instance, where you know the sport originated from and, it, and, it's, and it's so huge here, women's football is only really starting to make its way into mainstream media and obviously it's you know we all follow our own teams and 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 uh, you know not most of us aren't glory hunters especially ones that listen to our to our podcast but <laughs> success you know breeds a following and out of the US doing so well I mean you just have to look at, at how it changed for uh, for the the England team when they got to the semi-finals the interest round by round Grew and I feel that I feel that there was added interest at the beginning before that tournament started, especially with the likes of Phil, Phil Neville um, as a coach, which was a huge thing to get such a big name from the men's team into into the women's side. But yeah, as as it got further and further, it, the numbers just grew, and and obviously if they're going to be more successful than the men's team, uh, like they are in the states, then you know you win a World Cup and all of a sudden it's 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 maybe worth. Uh, worth looking into, and with that, obviously the, the names you've mentioned are coming over to the, to the uh, the women's Premier League. The best players are, are coming over, and they're going to have the biggest impact. So, um, so it's only going to it's only going to help things in, uh, in 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 America. And as you said, if the if the men's team can can get to even a quarter final or could do something, get out of the group stages and cause an upset, I imagine it was pretty big when they got that draw against England in in 2010 in the World Cup. But if they can get a little bit further and they can drive that interest, then then suddenly people get hooked. I remember I got hooked on football just from a world from a World Cup in '98, first and foremost. So such a such a big event has such a, a huge impact. Yeah. So I mean, we were gonna we was gonna go on to how the impact of of um, football and, and and soccer in the US has has grown so massively, but um, we've covered that already. I do want to talk a lot about uh, a little more about what it is you do on a day-to-day basis what your involvement is with with NBC because it's in uh, obviously a, a, a writing capacity and you manage a, a team who um, produce you know articles and write-ups on on everything to do with with your sport um, whether it be the women's or men's national team whether it be the MLS or any of the European games transfer talk anything anything like that what is the bulk of, of what you do and which which elements of the NBC structure, because it's such a huge company, um, do you have involvement with? You know, there's obviously the, the TV side, and that's a lot of what people see, um, and, and you're obviously hugely involved with the, with the, the articles and, and the Pro Soccer Talk website. Can you just give our, our listeners a bit of an idea as to what it is that, that you do and what you have a hand in? Yeah, I mean, day to day I run the website. I'm the editor of Pro Soccer Talk and manage the writers and I'm the lead soccer writer at NBC Sports. So essentially, if there's anything to do with this sport, I write about it. Champions League, Europa League, Bundesliga, MLS, women's soccer, men's soccer, national teams, 
Premier League is the main focus, of course, because that's our main rights. But yeah, as well as doing that, um, I travel around to games here in England, speak to players and managers after games, which obviously has changed quite considerably since the lockdown situation with Zoom calls now replacing that. But, you know, being in mixed zones after games, speaking to players, and that's on a game day. But during the week, I will go to, you know, I've been to Saints' training ground a few times and sat down and done live Facebook chats with, you know, Jan Bednarak, Romero's given us a tour of Staplewood, um, those kind of things um, as well. So during the week, there's a lot of interview, like access, one-on-one opportunities that have been lucky enough to create great relationships with clubs across the Premier League over the last seven years who also know that our audience is a US audience and want to uh, provide us with you know, players or the manager to speak with to those US fans as well. And yeah, I do a lot of video work as well. So that's been maybe the main change since I first started as the editor at Pro Soccer Talk seven years ago. Um, now I'm producing and writing videos, uh, writing scripts for them, being the host myself. So across our website, social channels, as I said, but also YouTube has been a big uh, driver, which uh, most of the videos are geo-blocked because our rights have, as US rights holders. So uh, here in the UK and anywhere else, you won't actually see a lot of the work that I do. Um, so uh, Fred, I get family asking me over here or friends, where can I watch it? Where can I watch that? And uh, yeah, I the tried to myself earlier. Uh, New York or LA, you can't watch it. So that's really interesting to me. Uh, and the way that role was kind of morphed, um, I think it's the way that most journalists have seen it as well over the last four or five years from a purely written background. Um, video is sort of the king now. So um, yeah, it's great. I love the sort of buzz of going to a stadium on a match day, having to write on a deadline, analysis posts, speaking to players and the managers afterwards. And uh, it's always good if you can build up good relationships with players to see them in the mix zone. So Christian Pulisic, for example, is someone I've known since he was very young in the US youth national teams and coming through. Uh, I spoke to him at Dortmund a lot. So now after after a Chelsea game, I'll go to the mix zone or you know an area down in the depths of a stadium and the tunnel areas that broadcasters and rights holders are allowed to. And I'll have a chat with him for the website and speak with him and within an hour transcribe it and that'll be up on the website and people in the US can hear what Christian Pulisic has to say. And then in turn, our broadcast team will do a wonderful job broadcasting every single game, backing from our base in Stanford, Connecticut. They will promote our written articles, promote our work over here and um, draw people to the website that way. So I think it's uh, a key part we play. I think written website has obviously changed a lot, as I said, but from a broadcast perspective, that's our bread and butter as a company. And we provide a lot of content for Premier League fans in the US. Like you said earlier, I think if you're a Premier League fan or a Saints fan or you know, Liverpool fan, whoever, and you live in the UK, then you're probably very jealous of how much content we you get to watch as a football fan in the US because you get to watch every game. You get to see analysis, uh, lots of live shows on Peacock, the new streaming service, 24-hour Premier League channel. There's a lot, a lot of highlights and basically anything you could possibly want. So, um, yeah, that's kind of what I do. That's my day-to-day. So I know I've gone through a lot there. And as you mentioned, I work on US time over here. So that's always interesting. You know, social from a social perspective of 
someone invites you to play six aside on a Tuesday night, usually you'll have work calls and stuff because it's only two or three uh, Eastern time in the States. So, um, but I'm not complaining. I love it. And uh, I really get a massive buzz off being over here and, and working on the ground here in England. We do a feature on here with, with all our guests called Matchday Memoirs, which is, uh, we'll just ask you to, to kind of take us through a typical match day in in your field and in what you do so would, would it be alright to, to have a slightly different take on it and tell us what it's like from a, a US side of things as, as, a, as a sports writer and a broadcaster especially with everything kicking off so early what, what's a, a, a typical uh match day look like for you in your match day memoirs well in, in the US when I'm working for NBC Sports there and the times if I'm at the studio or if I'm up in upstate New York with family uh, watching games in the office there, it's early start. It's, you know, the production side of things, people are up working before 5am on a Saturday and Sunday morning because the game, first game kicks off at 7.30 Eastern. So we're live on air 7am Eastern. So from a website point of view, we're making sure that people know where they can watch the game, stream live, uh, watch live posts that are going up and we're working in conjunction with our social media team to make sure that information is being sent out. And then for me, pretty much have a hub. Um, when I'm working in Connecticut on a match day, it's awesome because there's TV screens everywhere. And if it's the three o'clock games in England, it's 10 a.m. Eastern, New York time. And there will just be games going all over the place. And you're sat there you know, in a control room or I'll pop into the studio and watch games with Rebecca Lowe and Robbie Musto and Robbie Earl and uh, the rest of the crew. And it's just a great buzz. You know, there's so much going on. There's a lot of hard work, don't get me wrong, but I'm usually there with my laptop Um managing what myself and the other writers are doing. We're writing recaps on games, analysis. We cover every single game in the Premier League season. So all 380 games will have recaps, three things we learned, analysis on it. Um, and yeah, it's a real buzz. And if something big happens, all the departments, we kind of just you know work together to cover the story. And uh, it's always a lot of fun. And it's long days because... Like I said, people will work and start work at 4 or 5 a.m. And then the final game of the day, especially during Project Restart, was you know kicking off at 3 p.m. Eastern time and finishing around 5 p.m. in the evening. So that's a long time to sort of be live on air or have a lot of that being live on air and a lot of different game windows. And uh, yeah, it's, it's good for me. Um, that I can be, when I'm stateside, you can watch all the games uh, very, very easily. And uh, it's always a challenge for me to try and not only watch every game, but make sure I know what I'm, I'm watching with my team of writers and that we have every angle covered of every single game and that we aren't spreading ourselves too thin. You know, I think that's the, that's the thing when there's games going on at different time periods that's you know time slots is, is much easier to manage but in the chaos of a 10 a.m eastern saturday slate where there's like six games going on at the same time that's crazy but it's great at the same time so it's a lot of hard work that goes on behind the scenes all week long you wouldn't believe the amount of people who are working in all different departments to make sure everything is prepared for those games when 
the first whistle goes at seven o'clock, seven thirty Eastern on Saturday morning. So um, yeah, I think when you get to the match day, you're as prepared as you can be, and then it's go time. And uh, you know, I think working in football journalism and working in the media world around the Premier League, um, it's pretty much the second best thing to be able to play and be out there. So I love it and get a real excitement and and buzz off of of doing that every weekend of the season so yeah this year though i can imagine it's been it's been a bit different it's been a bit different for everybody with the uh, with the covid19 pandemic i read your article from the weekend obviously that you were during project restart you're over in the states so arsenal against fulham uh, last weekend was the first time you'd been back into a ground well since since lockdown really how was that for you and how different are any particular roles has much changed or obviously from a writing perspective putting stuff onto the website, editing, you you should be, like, I imagine you're able to do that uh, from a laptop at home, etc. But being actually in the ground, how was that for you? It was great. I mean, it was strange. Like, I got the tube uh, across London, got off at Putney Bridge, and usually a couple of hours before kickoff, there's a lot of fans milling around, and you walk through the park up there. I mean, a great place to start the season, by the way, Craven Cottage. Absolutely love going there. And the big thing to me wasn't the sights, it was the sounds. I'm sure a lot of journalists have said this, but going to the stadium and just not really hearing anything and very easy to get in, get set up, like you said, very similar in the press box, although we were scattered around the main stand there at Craven Cottage just because the press box is really cramped there. So they basically scattered us all out around the main stand and we all had 25 seats around us. Um, and then... Just the noise. I didn't even see that Arsenal had come out for the game um, because usually you'll rely on the fans to boo or cheer. Or I didn't. Even, I, you know, I'm talking about before the kickoff, so I didn't know they'd actually started playing the game. But you know, when they walked out, I was like, "Oh, Arsenal already out." And I think as a journalist, for me, people say, "Oh, it's great. You get to go to all these games." You know, and trust me, it's great. Um, but it's not like we're there just to watch the game and have a beer and, you know, have some food and, and hang out with your mates. I mean, you're there to work, so you watch probably half the game and the other time, other half of it, you're writing your copy, you're thinking about things you can write about, you're looking at emails and have stats up on different pages. You're, you know, there's a, a million things going on, so you probably only watch 50, 60% of the game and you rely on the crowd a lot for... If you're, especially at the end of a game, if you're getting close to writing something and it's a tight game, the last thing you really want to hear is a roar from a, like a, a loud roar from a crowd to say that penalty's been given or there's an attack going on. But you rely on that to look up. And that was a big difference for me on the opening day. But uh, yeah, I loved going to the game. Uh, I thought for the most part, nothing really changed from a journalist's point of view. The main thing was after the game, managers now, you speak to them on the Zoom call. So... I was doing that anyway in the States during Project Restart, so I was used to doing that. But now I was actually at the stadium, but on the Zoom call. So that was peculiar. Like you could basically see the players, you, the, the managers, where they were going, and you could speak to them. They were 100 yards away in an office, and you had to Zoom call, which is fine. And, yeah, the deadlines are a bit quicker after the game. Um, stadiums aren't staying open uh, as late as they were, so... Um, that was not a challenge you kind of knew about that speaking to other journalists ahead of time so you can plan ahead but yeah 
all in all, match day experience didn't change as much as I thought, but the fans, of course, were the big thing that was missing, and I can't wait until they can come back safely. Yeah, I think, I think it's really interesting that the, the part specifically about the kind of the prompts um, audibly missing from, from the crowd, because like you said, you, you hear that kind of roar of anticipation, or when, the, yeah. when especially when there's a breakaway or something happening, that you, you just don't get from, you know, the players on the pitch don't visibly get excited when someone's going through or, or you know you might hear the odd coach shout and go on go on but the fact that there's an empty stadium and like you said you've got your you've got your head in your notepad writing something down you can look up and all of a sudden the ball's getting put in the back of the net and you don't you don't know what's happened so um yeah i've never really from a, from a journalistic point of view that's something that i've never really thought of and it's just just uh, just goes to show that there are so many differences and small differences for all the different people that would or wouldn't be in the stadium. That is, yeah, a lot. I think I think when the crowds are back and everything's back to normal, you, you and I and everyone else might find that actually, you know what, it, it, it was a lot different, and and you forget about certain things that, that are missing. Um, but yeah, once it all comes back, and hopefully that's soon, um, everyone will go back to to normal. And uh, I know. There are a lot of tests, piloting, things going on, especially around the Football League this weekend. And over in the States, there have been a lot. I know the opening, uh, opening NFL game had a 20% capacity in Kansas where there were 16,000 of an 80,000 stadium. So hopefully things are moving safely and, and people can safely go back and start watching the game. You've been doing a lot of uh, watch-alongs, which is something that I've, that we've, I've seen on, online. I'm not sure if that's something that you've done previously or if that's just a, a feature that you've added during lockdown as almost a replacement for something else, is, uh, or is that just for, for a bit of presence with, uh, with, with followers and, and, and watchers. But how, how's that been and what was the kind of premise behind it? Yeah, it was a lot of fun. We just kind of thought, you know, it wasn't geo-blocked, so we could just chat with fans around the world pretty much um, and watch the game with them, as the headline suggests. But just grab a beer and then just let people ask whatever questions to me and they wanted in the comment section. And, uh, we did that for some big games during Project Restart. Um, sort of plans in place to do that again coming up. But the main idea was just to bring people together in a situation where you can't go down the pub and watch the game with your mates or you can't get around with family in different parts of the world. You couldn't even you know, go and do any of that. So we could build a community where people would come and watch the games together. So the three times we did during Project Restart, um, a lot of the same people were coming back and you know I'd pop off to grab another beer or whatever at halftime and come back and people would be having chats amongst themselves in the comments section and, you know, chatting about, you know, all kinds of different things uh, to do with football. So that was pretty enjoyable to see how quickly that gained some traction and a lot of people were watching it, which was really cool um, and asking really good questions. The majority of the fan base was from the US just because it was streamed live via NBC's YouTube channel. But we did have people from all over the world, you know, Australia, all over Africa, South America, um, the UK, elsewhere in Europe. So that was fun. It was just kind of a, something we wanted to try, to try and let people know that even though the situation was very peculiar, we could still watch football together as if we were down the pub or around your friend's house. And I think people really enjoy that sort of 
human aspect you know I wasn't it wasn't anything dressed up it was just me watching the football on a, on a screen um, and having a beer and answering people's questions and uh, sometimes keeping it simple is the best thing to do and the interaction and, uh, and and you mentioned a few times the word community especially with um, mm. with the US kind of uh, sports fans and like you said they might a load of fans of, of West Ham might meet up somewhere in, in California and, and watch a game this gives them yeah. almost a, an, another opportunity when they couldn't go outside or whether yeah when uh, things seemed a bit a bit doom and gloom so I think that's uh, yeah it was really it was a really good idea and like, like you said I sort of had a look at some of them not at the time but afterwards and it was uh, it was just kind of a chilled out vibe where you know usually you're on the other side of the screen writing articles and, and you know, professionally and everything else where actually this was just a bit of a laid back let's all just get together grab a beer and, and, and watch the game which I think was um, yeah was, was a testament to to you guys and then trying to be creative and find a way not only to, to get some content out there but mainly to stay interactive with your fan base and, and, and looking after them which is um, yeah which is a really good idea it's a nice touch yeah no I really enjoyed it so um, you know maybe it's something that we keep doing throughout hopefully it's not much longer that fans can't go to stadiums and, and whatnot but uh, I think it's definitely a place for it even in a post-COVID world that we hope is coming up very soon the fact we can still connect with fans in this way Definitely, I think, from a lot of media companies and a lot of journalists I've spoken to, I think this situation has forced people to be more creative than they ever thought they would be and try new things. And a lot of it has been very good stuff that I think lessons have been learned and we can do things a lot differently in the future. And that's been a real, real positive, I think, for me and for many people. I just wanted to... to Take it back just briefly to you and your team of writers, because before we we started recording this episode, you said you probably spend sort of on average a quarter to a third of the year over stateside in kind of North New York State and, and Stanford, Connecticut, where um, I think you said NBC is, is based. Your team of writers are they over in America? Are they in England? Is there is there a split? Because obviously you've got to cover. When you're over here, you're you're covering the games and you're going to the stadiums in Premier League. Presumably, you've got people doing the same thing in MLS. How how does that work? How big's the team, and, and is it kind of a mixture? Yeah, I mean, our team is all based in the US, so I'm the only writer and journalist here in the UK. So yeah, the guys there are chasing um, sort of stories in the ground and in the US, and go to MLS games. Of course, depends with which market and which city they're in, but they all have great connections in the US soccer community. So um, I would say after the Premier League, sort of the US national teams are our biggest um, sort of levels of interest. People are really interested in, in, you know, how well the national teams do. So our writers are are based all over the country. So um, that really helps me because any story that's breaking from a US soccer standpoint, we... We have people we know what they're talking about, you know. Some we have really great writers who have covered soccer in the US at all different levels, be it lower level, MLS, the national teams. So so yeah, it's being over here in England, I try my very best to watch as much MLS as I can late at night here. As I said, I work later, so it's kind of easier. But um the guys there make sure we have that balance right, you know, from a a US soccer website, which Pro Soccer Talk is, 
of course, we focus a lot on the Premier League, but we focus a lot on the US teams and the players as well. So, yeah, very lucky to have a very talented group of writers that I manage day in, day out. Let's talk about let's talk a bit more about the uh, sort of the Saints point of view. What is our following like in the US? Do do we have many fans, or is or is it sort of a, a a niche area? I think I may have given most of the Saints fans personally a scarf or a shirt at some point that scattered around the states. No, um, it's niche. I would say. Um, I think. A few years ago at NBC Sports, we had a documentary called The Southampton Way, which has been shared a lot. Uh, Roger Bennett from the Men in Blazers, who are affiliated with NBC Sports, do great stuff uh, with the podcast and their TV show. Um, they did a great job of that documentary. And obviously, we know that a lot of clubs at the youth team level in the US want to emulate what Saints have done with the academy. I don't, it's a different country, different system. So I don't know how easy that will be to do. But that definitely piqued a lot of people's interest from the club. And then when we were obviously fighting the top six and Europa League and upsetting the odds, they were kind of a fashionable team, I think, four or five years ago, maybe slightly longer ago. If you didn't want to, if you were new to football and you wanted the Premier League team to support, Saints would be one of the ones that a lot of people would mention that you should get on board with because, you know, they're not you won't get accused of being a glory hunter or a bandwagon fan. But that's, you know, I'm not going to go ahead and say there's huge supporters groups all over the country, but there are very dedicated supporters groups. And I think a lot of them have links to Southampton through family or friends that have definitely passed on the gospel of the Southampton football club. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting um, to see. I know I spoke a lot with Ralph Kruger when he was at the club and working their work with Under Armour. They went to Baltimore. If you remember when Club Hour was the, uh, manager for pre-season um, and there were massive plans and there still are there's people at the club who still work on growing the fan base and the club's sort of marketing um, in the US but obviously when the ownership moved to to China um, that more emphasis of the international scale of the club moved to making the team a bigger draw in China so um, but I think the US you know, the Saints fans are definitely in a niche, and uh, I, I, I wish it wasn't that way. But it's it just the way it's the way it is. But um, I guess it's kind of our, our secret for right now. But maybe one day there'll be a, a massive club in the US as well. I think it's the same as most um, places, really. I mean, you, you've got people people over here who pick a, a, an NFL team or, or a basketball team, and, and won't have much to to go off unless they've got. You know, someone like you, like your wife's family, who's, who don't really have a choice in which uh, which football team they get to support in the Premier League. But uh, if you haven't got any kind of links, then you, you almost kind of watch a game and, and, and see a team win and think, oh, actually, you know, I quite like them. I'm just going to start following them. And with when it's not one of the big six teams in the Premier League, which I imagine most fans over in America... There's a plethora of teams to be able to kind yeah. of land on and not and really I think much to choose from. It's pretty interesting to see that, you know, the supporters groups will pop up and it's, you know, we're going to do this together. We're going to go to the pub every Saturday, Sunday morning, watch our team. And even if they don't win, it's like a, a community thing, which is really big in the States because you can watch every game every weekend. So you could go all in on Aston Villa or West Brom or whoever as a group of fans if you really want to get into it and you like another sport but you want to get the Premier League a try 
um, that's kind of the great thing I think we bring to the party. You can just choose a team and you get to watch every single game. But when I was in university, yeah, that wasn't that easy because we were in League One and I was trying to tell all my mates on the soccer team at the University of Pittsburgh how great Saints were, giving them shirts and scarves every time I'd come back home. Um, and to be fair, a lot of them, when they come over, they came over to St Mary's and watched preseason friendlies in the summer and they stuck with Saints like as their team. So, um, And now you can watch them. Obviously, that, that helps. But uh, yeah, like you said, you have to kind of have someone who knows all about the club to explain it and I think that then if you can get them hooked on the story behind the club and build that identity then it's almost more fun more enjoyable right than just picking the team that wins every single week and wins the trophy so that's that's the way we like to look at it I know that and there's obviously Hartford Athletic over there which is a relatively recent team that have been affiliated with Samson of course um, Randy Joidy over there as the head coach was the was the under twenty threes coach uh, at, at Staplewood and uh, and Johnson over there as well. So we've got we've got a few little uh, kind of links, tenuous links, but as you say, with the with the whole Chinese uh, move over, over to over to Asia in terms of the world audience. But we've um, yeah we've got that over in Hartford. Do you know too much about that? Is is there much of a, a thing going on there is there so much exposure at that level I suppose for you as a Saints fan and, and, and working at NBC it's something that was uh, was of interest to you when it came about yeah definitely um, I've spoken to Randy JD before uh, all this happened and he obviously held in high esteem as a, a good coach who's very good with young players and that's mostly what he's dealing with at Hartford Athletic it's you know the obviously USL so Mostly kids out of college who haven't been drafted by MLS teams or been loaned out to them. Um, and yeah, there's not an awful lot. Again, I think it's one of these partnership things where Saints have connections. Um, I believe recently they just announced in Virginia as well, a big youth soccer club that they're helping out. Um, and I spoke with people internally at Southampton a while ago and they basically provide a package of training and models and invite coaches over from the US to Staplewood to watch them train and coach and then they will go over certain times of the year to help them in their youth programs so I think Harvard's pretty similar to that um, in terms of Saints will guide them on certain aspects uh, Jay's kind of a special case I guess he wanted to be a head coach somewhere by all, by, you know, by all accounts and give that a go and uh, yeah, it'll be interesting to see what happens there. There's some definitely some some interesting things going on behind the scenes there. I don't think they're ready to become an MLS team anytime soon, but they definitely want to produce young players that maybe can move on to other MLS teams and make a name for themselves that way. Was there much of an opportunity for you when you went over on a scholarship, obviously, and then um, in Pittsburgh, and obviously? Um, ended up at our growth as, as most most do. Was was there ever much opportunity for you to to continue? Obviously, you went down the journalist uh, route, but in terms of continuing to play your football at, at, at a level in, in America. Yeah, I went to both the USL and the NASL combines after university, and yeah, I mean, coming back to the UK was the easier option to play when it came to visas and work permits and stuff like that. So I would love to. It wasn't as organised now as it is the lower levels. Um, there was not many teams underneath the MLS level, to be perfectly honest. Back then, the NASL only just restarted in 2012, and then 
obviously USL has only become a more stable league, shall we say, because they partner with Major League Soccer and every MLS team either has to have an affiliate USL team or run their own reserve team. Um, and that's only been a thing for the last what, five, six years now. So kind of missed the boat on that. But if I was a player now, a young English player going to play college soccer in the States, there's a lot of opportunities. You see a lot of really good players here moving to the States and ending up playing in the second division in you know, California or Nevada or Texas somewhere, playing at a really good level. I think it's a great opportunity. I've said it to many people. I, I played it. For Salisbury City and the youth teams was coached by the legend that is Nick Holmes and Tommy Woodrington there and that was a great experience for me and Nick Holmes' son uh, moved to Nebraska uh, when this opportunity came up he'd obviously had that experience with his own son um, and he told me to, to go to the States to do it it'd be a great opportunity so uh, I knew the opportunities that are back here in the UK playing but I here it was interesting because I'd actually been accepted to the journalism course at Bournemouth University and the plan was to play at Salisbury City or a similar level. I actually moved to Eastleigh before I went to the States, um, six months before that. So I was in the reserve team and on the bench uh, in some first team games. And I was playing with Aaron Martin, who was good, obviously a good friend of mine from Itchen College, is a year younger than me. Um, so... I knew the opportunities that were here, but I knew that um, perhaps the level of play, it wouldn't maybe allow me to continue my education at the same time as playing. And that was a big part of going to the States where I went to the Big East Conference. Big East and the ACC are like two of the top soccer conferences for college sports in the US. Um, so got to travel around. I'd, you know, give you an example. Friday morning, would fly from Pittsburgh to Tampa, play against the University of South Florida on a Friday night, uh, fly to Chicago Saturday morning, play against DePaul University on the Sunday, um, fly back to Pittsburgh that night, and then have to be in class at 8 o'clock on the Monday morning and do my degrees. So uh, it was a wonderful way to see the country, great level. Uh, University of Connecticut, there'd be you know, four or 5,000 fans at university level. Uh, Notre Dame, one of the biggest universities from a sporting perspective, a couple thousand there for games. Uh, you travel to some ma massive cities, play against some very good players who are now scattered around MLS. The likes of Jeff Cameron at Stoke City was at West Virginia, one of our rival universities. Tim Ream was at St. Louis at the same time. DeAndre Yedlin at Akron, just up the road from Pittsburgh. So yeah, great breeding ground for college players. And for me, at least, I knew I wanted to be my, my main aim was to be a, a football journalist. That was always what I wanted to do. But I wanted to keep playing football as long as I could. And that was a great way to keep doing both things for as long as possible. So, loved it. Absolutely loved it. Was it was great fun. Yeah, it was. It was. You played as a centre-back, am I right? It was a sort of a no-nonsense centre-back, as it were. Yeah, well, centre-back at college and then I gradually worked my way back. Yeah, I was a holding midfielder, central midfielder. I scored a few goals at Pitt one in my sophomore season. So then I was, we struggled for goals. So most of my junior season, I actually played up front as a sort of, I guess, emergency striker. I'm trying to think of some players who've done that in the past. Stephen Corker. Edwin Jones of America. He started as a centre-back, centre-midfielder, and in the end, centre-forward. <laughs> yeah, and then, you know, I played right back a bit when I was at Arbroath. And uh, yeah, so a bit of everything, really. I could say 
a hard worker, works hard, tries hard, dependable, uh, decent in the air, and uh, yeah, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed playing as long as I possibly could, but I knew when the opportunity came to NBC, I was like, I'm pretty happy now. Um, yeah. Hanging up my boots, and the, the lower leagues in Scotland were great, great breeding ground. Did my UEFA B coaching badges when I was up there as well, and uh, lived in Edinburgh. It was great. People were so passionate in Scotland about football, but I was really happy to make that transition from playing to writing full time and, and working as a journalist full time. Going back to Saints, uh, there's been a hell of a lot of optimism bef- before the start <laughs> yeah. of this season. I think Saints fans on some poll were at the top for the most optimistic fans in the Premier League going into this new campaign. It's not been the best start, let's just say that. How surprised, how surprised have you been by the two performances that we've had so far? And do you, do you reckon there's something going on behind the scenes that as fans we're not aware of? Or do you think it's a case of once they click, they can get back to the form that they had uh, post-project uh, post restart? Yeah, I mean... In all honesty, I've watched the extended highlights of both the games. I obviously I was at Fulham Arsenal in the opening day, so um, I don't know into the X's and O's and to the depths of the performance. But it seems to me like Saints are a team that need to be a hundred percent fit and firing on all cylinders, and I don't think that's the case right now. As Ralph Hassan said after the defeat against Brentford, that with the internationals coming at a bad time. Danny Ings, Ward Prowse, Bednarak, Armstrong going away and getting an injury. Other players disappearing for 10 to 12 days at that kind of a pivotal time of pre-season. It probably isn't helpful. And we all saw that during Project Restart, I think we were just fitter than any other team I saw during that period. And then Hazanuta must have just drilled them every single day during, you know, what was it, late May, June working when they were back on the training ground and Saints looked incredibly hungry. And let's not forget, we were kind of in a relegation scrap at the start of Project Restart still. There was still that lingering doubt that we might get sucked into it. So there was a lot of motivation there, I think, to put that to bed once and for all. And then we kind of rode that wave of optimism and got confidence from winning games. But I think what Saints fans forget a lot of times is that we are a very young team, very inconsistent, I think, still. Um, and that was a very small kind of sample size of six weeks, seven weeks, whatever it was, Project Restart. I would love to say that that would be the norm, but I think we're going to see more ups and downs. It wouldn't surprise me if we would be, you know, some big six teams coming up, but then also lost to some relegation candidates. Um, it's just the way that we seem to raise our game. But I wouldn't be overly worried. As we said, as Saints fans, we all know we've had very poor starts and always seem to turn it around. So I think in the age of social media uh, and whatnot, it's very easy to get carried away one way or another. I trust what the manager's doing. I wish they had more resources to sign the types of players that we probably could attract with him as the manager. But it is what it is right now. And I, I just kind of worry that maybe fans, like you said, in the optimism scale, maybe got a little bit too carried away with the forum project restart. It was great. Don't get me wrong, I was watching it and delighted as much as an ex-Saints fan, but um, reading some of the preseason sort of previews about it, it's easy to say now that we've lost the first two games, but there was part of me thinking, you know, hang on a minute, is, is this going to go as smoothly as it did during that period? So, um, 
I don't think we're going to go down, but it may not be as good as the season as we all thought. I look at it from the, the, the. I've got a slightly different slant on it from what I, I see of a lot of uh, people on on Twitter, and and I think to, to yourself, Tom, who's who thinks, or maybe maybe the maybe the team's not what it's cracked up to be, and maybe we are getting ahead of ourselves. But at the end of the day, it's we've only played one league game. And uh, and I know we also played Brentford, which is a banana skin, and that isn't really a side that you want to face in the, in the in the first round of the of the uh, of the League Cup. But you know, we, it would have been nice to have gone on a little cup run. But with the negative of being knocked out, comes the positive of not having that busy schedule, being able to work on that fitness, and. At the end of the day, Saints don't ever win the first game of the season, and in both those games, we had chances to uh, to win it. You know, Danny Ings and Shay Adams had chances in in, mm. in that Palace game, and Shay yeah, right. Adams hit the post against Brentford. So, so it's not like we're not creating. Um, the worry for me, uh, as as we've mentioned during the transfer window, and, and we'll come on to our, our, our signings or lack of, therefore, but I think. The defence has obviously been the issue, and I think that was kind of the cracks were were papered over a little bit with Project Restart, and all of a sudden people got a bit carried away and were thinking, "Oh, oh actually, Benarak and Stevens, they look like they can take us forward." I don't think that was ever really the case when you look at a lot of the displays last season. I think Salasu is is a real kind of make or break. You know, there's a lot of pressure on this young lad coming over because. We need him to kind of hit the ground running, and, and it sounds like he's not going to be involved for a couple of weeks yet. But defensively against Crystal Palace, we looked like we had a very, very risky way of playing. And defensively, I think we need someone with a presence, with a pace, positions themselves. Uh, wow, we obviously got Walker Peters in, and we got uh, and we got Salisu. What, what have you made of our of our acquisitions? I know we haven't. We've seen a lot of, of Walker Peters having Adam on loan. We haven't really seen a lot of, of Salisur, although you might know a bit from the coverage you've done in, in the Liga. Obviously, Oibio is the main one to go. I, 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 it sounds like we're not done, and by the looks of things, sometimes when you have a bit of a negative start to the season, it kind of pushes the manager and the, and the board to maybe make an, a signing. What do you what do you think we need, and, and what do you think we've uh, we've got to look forward to with, with the likes of? Of Salisu. Yeah, I think Salisu like says exactly what we needed. Um, slightly different centre back from what I've seen of him in La Liga. Really good. I'm not quite sure how we managed to pull that one off. So I think the future is very good there. In midfield, I think we all know that we've been sort of lacking play. I know it's not the way that we really play in terms of putting your foot on the ball and dictate and play a little bit more, but I feel like we need that kind of player. Just to, if teams bypass midfield with us and go long, we're struggling. Um, and teams will do that because of our high press. So if you can change the game from being end-to-end and direct and start playing through midfield a little bit more, then that would be nice to see. So I know Hazanut was talked about getting a number six in. Um, and I don't think that we really need to do that much, though, because Romeo played well uh, during the restart. He's solid, he's steady. Um, I like Smallbone a lot. I'm not quite sure if he's ready physically yet, but I think on the ball he's a really good player, and you can maybe fill that void I was talking about. But yeah, on that, on that note, 
Joe. We're obviously heavily linked with, with McKenney, who's American. Yeah. What kind of player was he? I don't want to talk too much about him because obviously he's yeah, yeah. gone, but just from the point of view of getting an idea of the sort of player that Arsenal's yeah. looking for. He, he's combative, um, loves to tackle, gets stuck in, so kind of a hazard of all player in that point of view, but also can create and pops up with goals from midfield and um, does a lot of things very well. But uh, I think when Juventus come and get him, I saw the other day he played in the friendly and was linking up really well with Cristiano Ronaldo, playing one-twos and in a much more advanced role. Um, I don't think Saints were ever really interested in him, um, really, seriously. Maybe, you know... It would have been a goer, but I think that he was just waiting out for his options for a so-called bigger club in Europe to come call in. So, um, Sounds I, a bit pricey as well for... Yeah, there, which yeah it's a bit premium. Obviously, he's gone on loan to Juve to start with, with kind of a structure in place. If he plays a certain number of games, then he'll play permanently. But he's that kind of player I think Saints would probably need. Combative, able to fit in within has a little system, but... And it's kind of like Stuart Armstrong, right? You want a player who can put his foot on the ball, pick out a pass and link midfield with attack. And I think sometimes that's where we go missing a little bit. We can win the ball back high. And that's great because we've got players who, you know, Ings, Chatham's now, Redmond, who can hurt teams in the final third. But when you start winning the ball back on your own halfway line, then what? You know, how much are we creating there? How, much, how able are we to get it quickly to the strikers that can do the damage so that's what we need and if I'm honest I'm not really holding out hope that we're going to get you know some magical signing from somewhere at this point it feels like the majority of the spending's done but maybe we will get a player in on loan late in the window that we won't expect you know from a bigger club a player who isn't involved for whatever reason early in the season I can see that maybe happening um, don't ask me who but um, I think sort of that that two-way midfielder who's got a bit about him on the ball and can unlock a defence. Um, so yeah, yeah, I think I think you're right. That's what we've been kind of saying as well in our in our previous episodes. Almost a, an upgrade on Hoybier, someone who can do the, the same thing that he does, which he does very well, which is win that ball. But like you said, once he gets in, he's over halfway. Then what we need to so so we'll. We're looking for someone who can do what he does, but also has more ability on on the ball. Because I think our, our creativity is in in the in the wide players and obviously our, our front two partnership. Whereas yeah. the central midfielders are, are more the engine room. Yeah, he obviously doesn't get forward, and Prowse is still quite limited in that area. It's difficult because a lot of players are looking. Sorry, a lot of clubs are looking for players of that ilk and we can do that as well especially right now with all the higher pressing that's going on throughout different teams in the Premier League and elsewhere so yeah um, I think that you know I don't think we're going to spend a lot of money on it so let's put it that way I think it also highlights also how much we did miss Armstrong in those first two games because I I was one of those yeah. idiots who put myself through the 90 minutes of Brent, the Brentford game yesterday and wow. I know p- bad decision but it was it was evident also against Palace as well that on the right side I, I do like Smallbone but he's not an attacking wide midfielder and no, we no, we lacked considerable mobility down the right side that Armstrong does provide because he's happy to take the ball forward and also he's very good at pressing I think he 
of all the players we have in our team, I think Armstrong is the one who probably gets the way Hasenhutl wants to play the best. Whenever I see him, he knows when to press at the right time. Um, yes, his sometimes his shooting or passing can be a bit off because he, you know, he's a solid player. He's almost like a Stephen Davis type player, but he's not obviously a De Bruyne or anything like that. But he, when he gets it right, he really does get it right. And I think that once he comes back into the team, we'll, sh- we'll see sort of that attacking ability back. It was just a shame that he was uh, he was injured playing for Scotland, and obviously Ralph yeah. was uh, was not best pleased with that. No, definitely, and I think that kind of shows how important he feels he is to his system as well. Um, but yeah, with Armstrong, he to me he's almost like the trigger for the press a lot of time. He's very intelligent and he's very efficient. Nothing is really done. You know, he knows the game. He understands the game. Uh, slightly different to other players that we have in those positions. And yeah, like you said, I like Smallbone as well as the two holding players. Very calm on the ball. Um, can can connect midfield and attack. I think that's where his strengths are best suited. But then, do you leave Romeo out and have Smallbone and Will Prowse in there? Is that too lightweight in the central midfield for the way that Hasenhutl wants to play? I'm not sure, but. That's what I would probably do uh, going forward, give Smallbone an opportunity in those, on those two holding areas in the next few games, because I don't think you'd do any favour sticking him out on the wing and on the wide areas. No, agreed. I think he is probably our best. Uh, you mentioned a dictator in the middle, and that's exactly what he does. He's probably technically, in terms of possession, uh, our calmest and, and, and most technical player that can play in that position. But like you said, him and Will Prowse, uh, you take away Romeo and the loss of Paulibio, and all of a sudden we're you know off the ball, which is hugely important in that role in that four-two-two-two system. Um, we, we did a um, we did a podcast where we we talked about uh, every Premier League team, and this was a couple of weeks ago. But who, what position, and 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 maybe an idea of a player as to which team should sign. And we've mentioned both the positions, but the central midfielder and that combative yet. Mm. Uh, useful on the ball was was uh, Tom mentioned, and then and, and we obviously need that. But also, uh, you know, my my idea was that we did need someone else who plays that real niche role that Armstrong plays. I don't think we've got anyone else in the entire squad. No. We play obviously with a with a left winger who plays wide, and then we play with a with a, a advanced right midfielder that kind of almost comes in as a number ten. And there aren't many of those around. So as soon as you lose Armstrong. He does struggle with injuries. Suddenly, we're we're really limited. So, um, still business to do, ideally in the transfer market. But as you mentioned, maybe scouring the market for for some bargains or some or some loans of players that may be uh, maybe surplus to requirement. You think? Yeah, I can't see us spending much money right now with the situation. Um, so, yeah. I don't, and I don't think we really need to at the moment. If the squad, if we don't add to this squad, I'd be happy enough with that. Joe, we're gonna we're gonna wrap this up as we've we've kept you for quite a bit now at this late hour. Although I suppose it's uh, not quite as late for you. But uh, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. We've really enjoyed having you on. Thanks, lads. It's been a pleasure, and uh, I hope next time we chat, Saints are battling for the top four and uh, on the FA Cup semi final or something like that. <laughs> Well, certainly looking forward to having you back on sometime soon then. We're going we're gonna to wrap this up. If you want to ask any questions to the podcast, you can find the podcast at under underscore saints on Twitter. You can find me at T214Murray. You can find me at Callum Wilson 21. And you can also find our guest this week, Joe Prince Wright, at JPW underscore 
NBC Sports. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of Under the Lights and have a good evening.